Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And this week, I don't know, Santosh, we got a lot of stuff to cover. There's been yeah. so much going on, and I just feel like there's an endless stream of information constantly oh. being <laughs> streamed at us. <laughs> Oh, you double streamed. I mean, oh, you don't cross the streams. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it happens where the stream splits. <laughs> Does it? Does it well, though? Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was told, I've, I've, I've heard from someone, not me. <laughs> so, well, the most exciting and totally unrelated to this week's episode is we found a black hole now. Well, oh, I mean, we, we've we've seen it. We haven't we, found it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, I think this is like just the coolest thing in the world. We put together an array of telescopes, radio telescopes, around the planet to make an Earth-sized telescope and then pointed it at a black hole 55 million light years away. That's some super villain shit right there. <laughs> it's so cool. We also did uh, get to photograph the black hole at the center of our, of our dear galaxy, Sagittarius A star. Um, but it wasn't as easy to see because it's not as big and it's much more dim. No, no, I'm just happy to see it from like a, a really, really far distance. But this was one of the coolest endeavors in my lifetime. I mean, it's, it's a cool time for physics. I think it's an awesome time for medicine and biomedical sciences, but it is an amazing time for physics right now. Well, that said, now that we've gone all the way into the future with this technology and science, 
we haven't really done a deep dive into history for a while, have we, Santosh? Oh, we haven't. And uh, I know because you've been a bit sad of late, and it's probably because you're missing your history. I, I am. I feel like we're just pissing away all these opportunities. Oh, stop it. Do- and, you know, we also <laughs> haven't done any specialty episodes in a while. It has been a while since we picked a specialist and, you know, made the show all about them. Now, when I first started doing stand-up and improv, I was always taught, start above the belt so it gives you somewhere to fall. Well, <laughs> folks, you're in luck. Oh, my God. <laughs> because this week we're going below the belt and we're going to do a deep dive into urology. Not myrology, <laughs> urology. <laughs> This is going to be the rest of the goddamn episode, isn't it? Probably. (laughs) So this week, we're going to take you through a little bit of the history of urology. Urology deals with the urogenital system. So this is everything that goes uh, from the kidneys all the way down to the bladder, down through the urethra. And there's urogynecology, which also deals with how the bladder and the uro, the urinary system relates to the uterus and the ovaries and the cervix and the vagina. Um, and there is the male side. The urethra kind of merges straight with the genital system when it comes to boys, uh, most boys. And so, you know, the urologists tend to be also specialists in male genitalia, i.e., the testes, the prostate. So this week we've got a lot of golden information that we're going to shower you with. Come on, dude, gross. (laughs) Let me take you through a little bit of this. I'm going to take you all the way back to the periodic table and the discovery of phosphorus. What? That's that's where we're starting. Okay, okay. Well, okay, so phosphorus does spill out in urine. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so how how does... Please tell me phosphorus wasn't first discovered in urine. Well, its discovery dates back to the year 1669 by German alchemist... Nice. nice, By German (laughs) alchemist Hennig Brand. And Hennig Brand was an apprentice glassmaker, and he married wealthy, so he was able to pursue his dream (laughs) of starting a career as an alchemist. He got to pursue his dream all about pee. And then I was, well, oh, okay, all right. Well, no. He's actually, yeah. This episode is going to get pretty wild, folks. So bear with yeah. us, all right? Because you're just going to be carried <laughs> along. So as an, <laughs> right. as an alchemist, okay. Hennig Brand was like all other alchemists at the time, trying to discover the Philosopher's Stone, which would allow him to transmute lead into gold. Well, actually, any substance to gold, if if it was to be believed, and it also had the property of giving you eternal life. Right. So he noticed that urine and gold were basically the same color. So he thought there was a possibility that urine could contain the precious metal and started collecting urine mostly from his wife and her friends and managed to collect around 1,500 gallons of urine over the course of his experiments in life. He then would boil it until it got a very thick syrup-like substance, and that would harden and turn black, and he would mix that part with more urine and heat it. And in the end, a lab accident led it to burst into flames, and he had discovered phosphorus by examining urine. Phosphorus is named in the Greek for light bearer, for the flaming urine substance that he found. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, uh, it's... 
you know, turns pretty colors and it's um, a bit pyrophoric. So like if you even expose it to air, I think like the pure metal, it'll just light up a little bit like sodium will. Um, and you get a beautiful, beautiful flame from it. From phosphorus, not urine. Please no. be aware. Well, yeah, don't try to light your urine on fire. It won't work. Yeah. So the color, the smell, and yes, people. It shouldn't, it shouldn't, it shouldn't work. Shouldn't? You know what? I, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. No. <laughs> don't involve me. So the color, the smell, and yes, even the taste of urine was used oh in the past to identify illnesses and give patient prognoses all the way from the era of Hippocrates through the Victorian era and beyond. <laughs> oh, hey, you just named some of your favorite ones, although you didn't mention Egypt. Oh, we'll get there. Don't worry. Okay. Yeah. But we're going to take you far, far back into the past and then bring you up to the future. So let's go back first to uh, Babylonian and Sanskrit where Ooh. yeah, where a lot of the different kinds of urine. So when we're talking about the taste of urine, yes, I'm pretty sure most of the population has now heard of at some point that, doc, that diabetes or diabetes mellitus, mellitus yeah. um, was named because the urine tasted sweet and that's how it used to be diagnosed. But what you may not know is there were a variety of urine tastes that were used to diagnose people in ancient times. <laughs> all right so i i have all these sanskrit words in front of me so ikshumeha kshurmeha sonitameha hastimeha and madhumeha not to be confused <laughs> with kamehameha no, <laughs> no that's hawaiian stop it so let's talk about these so these are some of the ancient sanskrit <laughs> writings and they described different urine varieties and they also described something that would occasionally appear in the urine that was referred to as kalmat sinatu, the worm of the urine. Something like that, yeah. So let's talk about just these briefly, these different kinds of urine. So Santosh, take us through this because you can actually pronounce them. What was the first? Yeah, yeah. So ikshu is like cane sugar juice. And so meha, but the, the suffix on all of these meha is going to be p. So ikshumeha is, uh, you know, cane sugar juice. So it's not just sugary. It's also um, kind of sticky and can be a bit opaque. So that's definitely a danger. Some bad out of control diabetes. This is when you're spilling like way too much, you know, sugar in the urine to be able to um, quantify. I mean, to be fair, it's not like they had insulin readily available when these terms were no, invented. No, 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 no. So, um, yes, that's exactly, it would have been very bad, diabetes. Uh, the next one is kshurmeha, uh, so potash. Potash is what you get, like, alkaline fertilizer, so um, ammonia, baking soda. It's a yeah, very, like really very strong. acrid urine-smelling urine, almost like a cleaning yeah. supply or a bleach. This is, again, you know, you're, you're in deep, deep trouble at this uh -huh, point. You're in... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you're probably spilling just a ton of uric acid, which is, you know, kind of breaking down to ammonia um, in your urine. Now, uric acid, high uric acid, the one that I'm most familiar with is cancer, like you're in tumor lysis. Right. Uh, next is so Sonita Meha. Sunita. Sunita Meha. And that's yeah. bloody. And, and this, 
By the way, so the, these are a little hard for me because the the prefixes on all of these are are sometimes like names. Um, a really famous one is Sunny Williams, who's a female astronaut of Indian descent. So it was very bloody urine. It was hot and had like a salty taste. Uh, then I like this one, ha- Hastimeha. Hasti, Hasti, Hasti. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Elephant urine. Elephant urine, right. So this is uh, turbid urine, like a mad elephant. So it's it's basically, uh, <laughs> it's it's really, really cloudy. Yeah, so, you know, you're, you're yeah. urinating so much, it's got its own little stream in it. And finally, madumeha, which is honey urine. And that's where it's yeah. astringent, sweet, and sharp. So it's a different kind of sweetness. That would be maybe earlier. And... Ikshu and Madhu are probably very similar. Yeah, yeah. So Madhu, <laughs> I, I I know a lot of again wonderful people named Madhu. So Madhu is um, honey sweet. This is a different type of sweetness than the Ikshumeha. So it's it's going to be a little bit more. It's got a sharpness to it. So um, if you can imagine drinking like a little bit of um, sugar water which has uh, more of a deep sweet to it versus like taking a spoonful of honey, which kind of has that bite to it. Um, so that's the, that's the difference between the uh, madhu and the ikshu. Probably a diabetes sugar. versus a ketoacidosis. Uh, it might be actually, that's a, that's a good one. I was actually thinking of if any of these people had diseases of metabolism, like for instance, maple syrup urine. Oh, that Which sounds lumberjacky. <laughs> is that a Canadian disease? It no, it's not a Canadian <laughs> disease. It's it's when you have trouble breaking down specific amino acids, smart ass. <laughs> I know that. It also is a pediatric, a very heavily pediatric-based disease, which puts it squarely in your wheelhouse. It is. Um, a lot of those those diseases of metabolism, they're diagnosed very early on because um, they're evident very uh, early on in childhood. And if you don't do something about it very quickly, the kids never make it into adulthood. So adults don't have a lot of experience. So now that we've established different ways to diagnose medical conditions from the taste of urine, you can imagine that, well, I'm just going to let you imagine whatever you like, but we're going to... Well, I mean, this is going back to like Sanskrit. And so this is like, you know, Ayurvedic kind of texts. India and, and Hindu doctors were not the only ones that recognized this. This was true in Babylon, in Egypt, in uh, ancient Persia. And you could tell someone that like, oh, something's very, very wrong by, you know, doing a, a urine taste test. This was a very, very evident symptom. Yeah, this is honestly looking at and even tasting the urine as gross as it sounds now was the earliest way to perform true evidence-based medicine. It was very objective and, you know, there there weren't, you know, two people who had like disparate opinions on things like this. And Josh, I think you'll relate beautifully to this because of how much you love to check the poo. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is the same type of thing, you know, your poo tells you a lot about your health. Your urine likewise tells you a lot about your health. Right. And, you know, again, this was a very objective measure. You wouldn't have two people taste the same urine and vastly disagree on what um, kind of... Yeah, what was yeah, going on. Th- 
they came to a consensus pretty quick because nobody wants to take multiple sips of urine. <laughs> All right. So, All right. Let's, Who else did stuff with pee? Ancient Rome, of course. <laughs> in fact, in ancient right. Rome, peering into the chamber pot fell not only in the domain of medical diagnosis, but also was entertainment. It was their version of Netflix and chill. Oh, come on. You can't just stare at urine and have fun. Well, no, you don't just stare at it. You predict the future yeah. with it. Oh, what? Yep. The art of no, the no. art of uromancy. <laughs> oh. The study of urine for purposes of divination began to appear during this time as uromancers would proliferate who would swirl, study and taste people's urine in the hopes of providing them with a peek into their future. Dude, gross. And if and, and if your future is you're going to die from diabetes, they would have been correct, but what? probably not in a lot of other ways. However, yeah. however, the yeah. Arabs came along and really helped to elevate Euromancy from an entertaining diversion to once again a method of improved diagnosis. And that's because there was one particular physician, uh, Isaac Judeus, who developed a portable flowchart. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, move along. A flowchart <laughs> of humoral and urine assessment so complex that he claimed it could determine every disease known. And this was the Pokemon Go of the day. There were over 20 different hues or colors of urine to choose from. So a doctor's work was basically done as soon as the sample was taken. Pee in this cup, and now I can tell you what you have. That's right. Your toilet was the Google MD of the day. This is very, very rudimentary, like urinalysis, right? And it's it's true. There's certain conditions, especially when they get severe, where you can take a glance at the urine and you know what's going on. Well, and the thing is, is they felt pretty comfortable with this, is even as we've changed from what the humors, the black bile, red bile, or hot, cold, all of these, across the world people are peeing the same way and the colors and the hues were staying consistent and the conditions associated with them were staying consistent enough that even if they were wrong on the reasoning, they would still be able to recreate their experiments. Oh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why this really became such a highly elevated and respected method of diagnosis for a while. And, how many of you have ever thought to yourself, you know, my pee doesn't look really good. I'm going to go see a wizard. That makes a ton of sense to me. So let's move on to the Renaissance. And I know I'm glossing over bits and pieces of history here, but we're just we're going to dive right into the juicy bits. Language. So during the Renaissance, of course, there was renewed interest in scientific, cultural, and artistic successes of ancient civilizations. But with a new emphasis on learning and study. So the Renaissance people weren't just going to sit there and be like, well, we're certainly not going to taste the urine. That's barbaric. And you can't divine the future by looking at the urine. But you may be able to diagnose. And this spurred a medical advance that took hold through Europe for the next two to 300 years. Uh, And that's when we got our discovery of phosphorus and alchemy through the study of uroscopy. Yes. Now we're getting into some modern stuff. Right. Put a camera in the in the in the pee hole. Well, no, 
No, the Renaissance didn't have those kinds of things quite yet. I don't think there was a little uh, pee hole camera in Da Vinci's book of doodles. But <laughs> oh, not yet. But you know, if Dan Brown has anything to say <laughs> <Right>. about it. <laughs> but here's the deal: gazing into a chamber pot, which, as you may imagine, was not like a fishbowl, could prove problematic yeah. to diagnose. There wasn't, and glass was very expensive, so you didn't want to pee in your drinking glass and then use it for wine the next day. (laughs) No, no, that would be a bad... So scientists of the day developed the matula, spelled like spatula, but with an M. And this was a round-bottomed flask made out of clear glass shaped like a bladder. Hold hold on, wait a minute. I gotta gotta see this thing. Oh, holy crap, there's a Lancet article. Oh my god, this thing is so cool. A 15th century matula flask from St. Swithin's house in the city of London from the collection of the Museum of London. Oh my god, Josh, can we see one of these in a museum? You can actually see one in the surgical Museum of Surgical Science in Chicago. Okay, tell me more about the matula. I'm hooked. Okay, so the matula approximated a shape of a bladder. It was designed to be a glass bladder, and the idea was that urine would be free to spread out in a shape similar to that of its natural environment and would therefore show its true color. It was a pizu. <laughs> I mean, the, the thinking is logical. I and like in it. fact, for any time you see, if you go to an art museum and you see any picture of somebody who looks vaguely scientific holding a flask up to the light, it's a urine flask. Yeah. This idea became the archetypal image of medicine and chemistry that persists to this day in like Renaissance <laughs> art. That thing where they're they're holding up like kind of, you know, looking at the light through a little beautiful test tube or a yeah, flask it's pee, or something. 100% of the time. <laughs> That's fantastic. And this allowed them to identify urine properties essential for a good diagnosis, which are some of the ones that we still do today. Some, including... Color, clarity, thickness, Uh sediment, odor, foam, and of course, taste. Because, you know, why give up on what worked? Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we've discarded taste, but uh, it's so cool. I'm looking through some articles right now. Um, and, uh, there are people, especially in the Eastern hemisphere, but there's one right here from a doctor at Baylor in Houston, Texas, who wrote an article called looking at urine, the Renaissance of an unbroken tradition. And so, yeah, for most of its history, uroscopy was a visual science. This focus peaked in the middle ages when the vessel used to examine urine, the matula became a symbol of the medical profession. That's so awesome. And so nowadays, as you know, Josh, like when you have a catheter in place, the urine goes into a a bag. And often we have like a very clear, like a reservoir in the front to actually measure the urine output, but it functions like a little matchup. And we still look at the color, the clarity, the odor, and we look for foam. That can tell you how much protein you're spilling in your urine. Yeah, yeah. You can't have foamy stuff and without And sediment protein. usually can indicate anything from broken up kidney stones to bacteria that lead to cloudiness to natural breakdown products. So, And a lot of this I, I really liked because even during my residency, Santosh, I still had to go down and run my own urine in the lab. Oh, yeah. You had to put it in the little automated yeah, the urinalysis. So you centrifuge it and then you either did a dip 
or you put it in the little automated machine with the straw, which would suck the mm -hmm. urine up and analyze it. Now, cool. even for us, color is a pretty important indicator, right? We're taught you should never yeah. see, you know, blood in the urine or if you're if you're well mm -hmm. hydrated, your urine's going to be mostly clear. If you're dehydrated, it'll be very dark. If you have liver disease, yep. it can darken. So there's a lot of things that can change the color of the urine. And this has held true for centuries. In fact, in one famous case, court physicians saw something amiss in urine samples given by Britain's Mad King George, George III, whose water was apparently a royal purple in color. Ooh, oh, so that's a problem. Did this person have... Poor yes, theory. the vampire yeah. disease. He had, um, like, uh, I, I can't remember the exact pigment. Porphyria is, there's, there's a problem metabolizing the breakdown products of hemoglobin, right? And that's supposed to turn into this stuff called porphyrin and eventually get processed by the liver and goes out through the bile duct into your intestines um, and actually helps you absorb things like fats and cholesterol. If you have a problem with that, then those porphyrins, like those toxic byproducts, actually build up and can cause horrible things like abdominal pain and a host of other symptoms. But interestingly, it's one of the very rare instances that turns your urine and it's purple. like, And it's almost more of a little bit of a blue than like a true purple. But purple was right, the right, royal right. color, so of course... George had to have royal urine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you don't see it very often, but, like, once you've seen it, you don't mistake it for anything It's true, else. and I, I have not been fortunate enough to see that yet, although I still hold out hope that I'll one day see purple urine. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And then uh, you, Josh, will actually have a... Um, kind of an exceptional view if you ever go down and do the centrifuge because it shows up especially well when it's in a beautiful clear glass vial and everything is I promise you audience here and now that should that ever happen there will be a photo on the website of me holding that flask up to the light and you can just all imagine the soundtrack in the back will be Prince's Purple Rain. But with no identifying marks no, on the No, I just want the photo of holding a flask yeah. like the doctors of old, connecting me to that time-honored, respected tradition of staring at people's pee in a totally <laughs> non-creepy way. And the coolest thing about it, Josh, uh, nowadays that we have mastery over some cool things like UV light uh, is uh, it actually fluoresces even cooler colors if you put it under a woods lamp. So let's move UV on light. to talking about some other famous waterbenders. One of the rare instances <laughs> in which this kind of uroscopy was dead on came again in the 1600s. And let's talk about the first person, at least the first European person, who yeah, decided that's, that's fair. to <laughs> taste urine. in. 1674, <laughs> English physician yeah. Thomas Willis was the first in modern, modern medical literature to observe the relationship. Although, if you read his account, he may have enjoyed the sampling process a little bit too much. Because, oh, here dude. we go, direct <laughs> quote, the pee on his palate was wonderfully sweet, as if it were imbued with honey or sugar. <laughs> and that is what led to the term mellitus. Up until then, we had only been using the Sanskrit or Babylonian terms, um, 
when they were recognized right. by, you know, us colonizers at all. <laughs> yeah, it, Melita or Melitus uh, is all, you know, it's, it's from the, the Latin root, which means sweet. Honey. It's actually sugary. the Latin word for so, honey. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, okay, so, so if you have honey, somebody right? with a mellifluous so, voice, they have a honeyed, very smooth right. voice. And if you have mellitus urine you have very smooth sweet urine so this was the you know kind of the neat thing about this so diabetes and i think we've gone over this before doesn't mean like sugar in the urine right so diabetes means to flow through because the original diagnosis was made because people were peeing a lot and then they'd get super thirsty and they'd need to drink a ton and then they'd pee it all out so they thought their you know, their water was just flowing right through them. And so, you know, there was diabetes where, you know, you, you just had, you know, water flowing straight through you because you actually had a defect in how your kidneys held on to water. And we call that today, we call that diabetes insipidus. Okay. But when you had the sweetness to it, now you had diabetes mellitus. And that's the... That's the I one think we're we really missed out there. Like, I kind of wish that diabetes insipidus was still called Hastimeha because you've got the elephant urine <laughs> is way more fun yeah. than you have, <laughs> you know, nonstop passing through urine. It's just. Well, you know, it's uh, just can you imagine, you know, just walking up to a patient and being like, sir, you're pissing like a mad elephant. And no, no, I'm not being mean. That's your diagnosis. Imagine like nowadays, if you really have to go, sometimes somebody may say, I have to piss like a racehorse. And well, I'll tell you a story about that in a while. But can you mind like, I have to piss like a racehorse. Oh yeah. Well, I have to piss like an elephant. No, no, no. Like a mad elephant. Um, And urine, of course, (laughs) was also used to determine pregnancy. And one text that dates from uh, 1552 clearly explains how if the woman's urine was a clear, pale lemon color, leaning toward off-white, having a cloud on its surface, then she must be pregnant. Uh, Now, you'll see how important, you know, the physical description of the urine would be to the diagnosis. Although, to be fair, that description, they probably would have found many men to be pregnant as well. However... Some doctors may have had more success wow. when they added wine to the urine for diagnostic purposes because in many pregnant women, there'll be spilling of protein into the urine and alcohol reacts visibly okay. with protein in the urine. So adding, if a woman had a certain color of urine and you added wine to it, that would actually be a reliable pregnancy test. Oh, neat. Wait a minute. Was that more... Uh, or less reliable than taking the urine and injecting it into a rat. Well, that was done in the 1950s, and and we'll get there a little bit later. But like in ancient, that in one ancient is totally Egypt, my favorite. Um, women would urinate onto a papyrus of wheat and barley seeds, and if the barley grows, it would mean a male child, and if the wheat grows, it would mean a female child. And this would be the first instance of identifying (laughs) a unique substance in the urine of pregnant women. Whereas if you mixed wine, it actually would change the color. So these were things that we came across accidentally, but were no less valid for it. And did we already talk about how frogs 
uh, were used as pregnancy tests in the 1950s? You know, I always wonder about that. I don't know. Um, I, I know that you and I have both giggled about it uh, many, many times, but I, I actually don't okay, know if so we've told the people. As we're t- so we're going to very briefly jump away from in the 1500s, they would <laughs> in ah, the 1500s, jump. they would mix <laughs> wine with urine to diagnose pregnancy. And it was actually pretty good because it reacts with the protein. So as long as you had advanced sufficiently in your pregnancy to be spilling protein, that would work. However, there is a species of frog, the South African horned frog, that is now spread throughout the continental United States as an invasive species because we used it as a pregnancy test in the 50s. Uh, Up from 1920 (laughs) through 1950, it was discovered that this frog, if you took a woman's urine, and this is if you went for a pregnancy test at any time, so your parents may have done this. (laughs) It's You're that kidding. recent. It's that so recent? if you went to the doctor for a pregnancy wow. test before home kits were available, they would take the urine you provided them. They'd yeah. send it to a lab. The lab would inject that urine into a female South African horned frog. If that frog then laid eggs, 100% guarantee of pregnancy. Oh, that's yeah, because the hormones in the urine would stimulate egg laying kind of i don't know what it would, to, well, <laughs> it, yeah yeah it's not quite heat because they don't go and have sex right. but they go and lay eggs so it stimulates like their of course sometime of around 1950s we realized that we could do this as like a home kit and once the 1960s sexual revolution became available <laughs> we didn't need all these pregnancy detecting frogs and they were just sort of released into the wild and are now kind of hopping around and took over certain other invasive species. And now there's other issues with them that we're not going to touch on. Uh, But yeah, go ahead. And, but there's a good chance that some of you may have been diagnosed by frog. So you didn't have to kiss a frog to get your (laughs) prince, but you did have to pee on it. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is, this is a tough one, right? Because this is one of those where um, it's it's possible that you know they were just asked for a urine sample, and then like they didn't know what was done with yeah, so, it. So I mean, there's a lot of docs through many many years who have tried to determine what's the component of urine, whether it's our German doc searching for gold in his showers, uh, Herman Brannig, or one of my favorite physicians to name. Paracelsus, better known as, well, he was better known as Paracelsus, but I like calling him by his birth name, Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. <laughs> oh, we've talked he about really him before. Is. He's uh, one of the guy faves. was just a genius for, for his <laughs> day. And, you know, he was another one of the ones involved in the study of <laughs> urine. And basically, the reason you get all these varying colors and tastes are due to a assortment of different inorganic salts and compounds that the body excretes because your liver and kidney filters out all your wastes. Um, But by the 1800s, by the late 1800s, sensory evaluation of urine was on its way out and had been replaced by chemical analysis, which is mostly what we do today. And that was what Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim pioneered. Uh, So... (laughs) Yeah, the the kind of the merging of 
chemistry into biological sciences um, and biomedical sciences was one of the massive turning points for Western medicine, along with the introduction of statistics. The 1800s was the Victorian era, and that, of course, was also the steampunk era. And we had advanced so far in that point of looking at urine in these glass flasks to get away from seeing it in a dark chamber pot so it could be a more natural thing that doctors were beginning to take the next step and saying, well, why don't we just go ahead and look at urine in the human body? But how do you do that? How do you peer in to an enclosed organ? Sure. And this is way before we had like teeny tiny Well, in 1804, Dr. Philip Bozzini published the very first description of what he called his light conductor, lichtleiter, which enabled a direct view into body cavities and had overcome the major challenges of any kind of endoscopy, which is light, optics, and handling. So I encourage you to go ahead and Google it, but it included two parts, a light container with an optical device that looked like an old-timey Scooby-Doo lamp, uh, and a mechanical part with viewing tubes that are fitted to accommodate the, uh, shall we say, anatomical access of the organs to be examined. Sure, it was sure. shaped like okay. a vase made out of a hollow lead covered with leather. So there was a round opening on the front that would have a wax candle on the top where the flame would always be in the same position and mirrors would be placed all around and structured through one half of the tube that would give you a little periscope into somebody's urethra. You needed to be able to access the genital region. Yeah, you need to be able to get to the pubis, to the, so according to, to, the to pubic the, region. According to the width of the cavity to be examined, the urethra, the female urinary bladder, gunshot tracks, the ear, different specula were used. So this lamp was brought all around the body, and then there were little blade-shaped prongs that could spread open the organ you wanted to see into to expand the channel. So imagine, you know, peering the doc using the same tool to peer into your ear and then into your genitals. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully I mean, 1800, washed. so... Eh. You're right, you're right. We're actually in an era... Where, you know, like washing in Western medicine wasn't yet understood to be, like, important. Maybe they cleaned it in between, but I wouldn't count on it. Um, Interestingly, here's a fun little bit of trivia. So the very first, you know, lick lighter, the famed Bozzini lick lighter, which was kept at in Vienna for over a 100 years disappeared in 1945 during the occupation by Allied forces, right? The very first beginning of endoscopy for any field. It then reemerged in the late 70s at Cook County Hospital, found in the the basement of the old headquarters of the American College of Surgeons. That kind of is a brief history of the highlights of urology. So we will eventually do a proper episode where we talk to a urologist about the many, many things that they do. But for those of you wondering, let's talk briefly about what urologists actually do today. Santosh, you want to tell us? Urology is actually under the umbrella of surgery nowadays. So these guys, you know, they were chemists and scientists that tried to diagnose by urine. And this is, uh, you know, where some of their tradition comes from. But 
I actually truly don't know how this happened, but you know, somewhere along the way, um, they became experts in anatomy of the urogenital tract. So um, if you think about urine, you have a medical specialist. These guys are called nephrologists. And these guys are now the ones who concern themselves with actually studying the function of the kidneys and the bladder. Um, but in terms of like how the anatomy works uh, and then surgerizing, so when you have to cut into the kidneys or the ureters or the bladder or the urethra, um, then you call a urologist. So these guys are the surgical specialists dealing now, with the Now, traditionally, they mostly deal with male issues. Uh, male fertility uh, is often referred to a urologist as a small percentage of male infertility can be caused by testicular cancer. Um, however, that does not mean that women should not see urologists. They are not a male-exclusive specialty. And urinary incontinence or pain can be a common problem among, among women, and a, and a urologist can work out treatment options, including exercises to strengthen the pelvic muscles, medication, implanted devices, and, of course, surgery. Now, most women tend to feel more comfortable going to a gynecologist for these things, and that's sort of where there's become a gender divide in the field. But for those of you wondering, urologists are just as able and willing to treat female urogenital issues as they are for males. Right. So you do have people who really super specialize. So there are uh, urologists who specialize in uh, male genitalia and the urogenital tract of males. Whereas there are a few others who super specialize and they deal with uh, urogynecology. So someone who would really specialize in male anatomy and physiology would be someone like the person who does prostate resection. Um, you know, when you have uh, either prostate cancer or benign prostatic hyperplasia and the prostate overgrows and, and stops a guy's ability to pee. On the other hand, um, if there's anybody out there listening or, or if you know anybody who's a woman who has had pr troubles uh, with bladder retention, you know, keeping like holding in their pee, sometimes after having children, um, because they can have what's called um, incompetence or weakness of the pelvic floor, Uro urologists or urogynecologists who are the ones who... Uh, do reconstructions to help support the bladder in those conditions so that, you know, you can so hold it. I, I found out about a couple of these things. So there is a urine wheel as well as an example of some old uroscopy things at the Chicago <laughs> Museum of Surgical Science, but they are scattered around. Yeah, they're, the urine wheel is cool. It's like it, a it color is a wheel lot for of urine. Fun. You, you should look them up. You should look up a lot of things <laughs> we've mentioned in this episode but probably not at work. That's <laughs> it for, for the history. And I, we've left so much just untouched. We've, and let's see, I can throw in a, just the tip from the recent road trip that we took. Oh, let's see. You went to uh, Kentucky and you went down to Tennessee. Oh, that's right. We, we did, did do Pigeon, Pigeon Forge. Forge. Okay, so I can't remember uh, where Pigeon Forge I also was. drove through Nashville, which, you know, was yeah. nice. If, if you're a big music person, it's a good place to visit. There's a lot of wonderful music halls there. Um, and then I went to Memphis. And in Memphis, 
I went for one reason and one reason only, and that was to see Graceland, home of Elvis. That is what Memphis is known for, and I felt like I couldn't pass through without seeing it. So I did get a photo next to Elvis's pink Cadillac, and I got to see his house, <laughs> his, nice. his quote-unquote mansion. Now, the property is huge. But the house just looks like a really nice house from the 1970s. Oh, okay. It's not not one of these like it's not. There's a small, you know, modern. There's the jungle tiki room, which is kind of decorated in a lot of green shag carpeting and has jungle themes to it. There's a lovely like family den that has seven or eight different televisions scattered around the room and mirrors on the walls. Like it, it clearly looks like it was a custom design but it doesn't have this intimidating sense of celebrity you get from watching tv today elvis seems like he would have been a very approachable celebrity i'd like to think so you know he was a cool dude and one of the cool things i saw is walking on his his plane he had a bed in the back of his plane that had a huge seat belt because faa regulations said you cannot have any sort of I don't know, reclining device or furniture that people would sit in without accounting for safety. And Elvis said, all right, put a seatbelt on the bed in case I get tired and want to take a nap in the... That's just FAA regulations. (laughs) I thought that was kind of neat. Also in Memphis, there is a, a burger place on Beale Street. Now, Beale Street is home to some classic blues, country, and jazz. It's one of, it's one of our country's musical heritage locations there is a diner oh nice that has been there forever called dyer's burgers d-y-e-r-s oh i think i've seen these on like cooking shows it is famous because they cook their burgers in hundred year old greece that's how long this place has been open now the burgers themselves do taste a little greasy but not nearly as much as you would think and my brother's opinion is that they were some of the juiciest burgers he has ever had. They look like, you know, kind of smash lumps of meat, but they taste amazing. And he felt it was at least on par with, and in rare cases, better than in and out For a Californian to make that claim. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty huge. Yeah, yeah. For, because, it, I, I, not even you know that it's good or not or you know objectively what's going on but it is a you you are it's kind of not digging an attractive past burger, your pride but it is a tasty one something. have some burgers at dyer's and then just take a walk up and down what appears to be beale street felt like mardi gras all year round like we were there on a wednesday afternoon and there were every <laughs> band every single bar had like live yeah. band music playing in the middle of oh, check okay. it out right, nice. and we'll continue with our roadside america next episode but that's it for this week as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback if you'd like to support us spiritually emotionally or financially links to do that are in the show notes along with all the sources used to research the show this week our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until and this show is produced by me with a lot of help from all my co-hosts. And until next time, as always, happy travels. <laughs> Bye, guys.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.